0: Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Biku Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. We've been looking at what the optimal social conditions for Buddhist practice are. To review, they include being surrounded by admirable people, having a right livelihood, having harmonious and cooperative social conditions, and belonging to a moral community, that is, a cooperative community of like minded people, for which the Sangha, the monastic community, is the primary example. Constituted by the Buddha and sustained in Buddhist lands ever since, as a lifestyle option for those who wish and are able to enter practice most deeply. Since the self is such a key concept in Buddhism, and the elimination of the self, both as ego and as thing, is practically identified with awakening, and because the self, as we've explored in the last few weeks, is fundamentally a social construct, I propose that we proceed by separating out those social and cultural conditions that compel or force us to be a self with selfish motivations from those into which we can relax in contented selflessness. I think this will identify much of the dysfunction of the modern world from which almost everyone suffers, Buddhist or non-Buddhist. We've talked about human evolution from individualist, self-centered apes to cooperative social beings. So it will not be surprising that more cooperative environments and moral communities will make fewer demands on the self. In fact, cooperation and selflessness are almost the same thing. I dare say that these are the conditions most favorable for living selflessly, and that these are also optimal conditions for spiritual well being for non Buddhists as well. Therefore, looking at the possibility of living as a non self under different social conditions serves as a means to critique society in general. In Christian terms, what would it mean? For the meek to inherit the earth, what kind of earth would they inherit? It turns out modern society, particularly the dominant neoliberal hegemony, does not look so good. This is verified by virtually any metric of human well-being, except for material assets, which we've already determined is seriously faulty. We've seen that the non-self and spiritual development fail under conditions of deprivation, fear, and exploitation. Without greed and hatred, the non-self, a locus of kindness, renunciation, and non-harming, easily becomes a doormat for thieves, con artists, rapists, and their ilk. The non-self is vulnerable in a competitive environment in which My gain is your loss, and vice versa. As a result, the non self easily slides into deprivation. Material survival as well as mating behavior can be very competitive. Now, competition and coercion are widely institutionalized. Society, and certainly our society, tends to be based in dominance hierarchies in which people in positions of power coerce and commonly exploit those below them in the hierarchy, and those below them in the hierarchy compete by endearing themselves to and collaborating with those immediately above, in the hopes of eventually being able to turn against them and replace them. Something interesting about this dark side of human society is that Almost all of it is found among the apes, particularly among our closest relatives, the chimps. They are very competitive, coercive, violent, and hierarchical. In fact, they possess many evolutionary adaptations, like expressions of dominance and deference, to maintain social hierarchies, but also form friendships and alliances when these serve mutual self-interests. At the same time, they are tribal. One tribe will compete in mob violence against another, raiding or defending against raids. It's significant that female chimps also compete with one another, but do not participate in the male social hierarchies, nor in tribal war. Of course, women do participate in human social hierarchies, even as CEOs and national leaders. But studies show that they generally fill these roles in a less egocentric way. So even this we seem to get from our chimp-like ancestors. Each of us has an ape within us, and that ape helps shape the form of our human societies. The ape represents our most individualistic, and self-centered tendencies. But as we have seen, we have evolved a markedly contrasting aspect of character on top of that ape to which most of our enhanced brain capacity is dedicated, which is highly social and cooperative, in which we freely develop and share a common ground of knowledge and culture, including language, organize ourselves into like-minded communities in which self-interest gives way to shared goals, in which we look out for each other, even for strangers at the risk of our own lives, especially in moments of crisis. We also find great joy in solidarity, even in singing, dancing, and making music together, engaging in common ritual behaviors, and in rooting for the same sports team in unison. Apes don't do this. What is really curious is how easily we flip from our ape side to our human side and back again, and how our social structures are an amalgam of both aspects. For instance, alongside dominance hierarchies, which have been clearly with us from our ape days, status can now be determined by how well or skillfully we exhibit the values of our particular culture as a matter of prestige, not accompanied by coercive control, but involving similar mechanisms of deference. Status will be based on different values in different societies. Ours is often based on either wealth or education, sometimes on great charitable acts or on talent in the arts or sports. In other cultures, it might be based on making beads, music, delivering sermons. For the Native American Navajo, to actively seek power will reduce one's status. And for the Zuni, the ideal man is dignified, affable, never tries to lead or engage in conflict, and again does not seek status for the yanomamo of south america status depends on how many people one kills from neighboring villages a low prestige tracks sociocultural values even when these values are admirable the ape reemerges and we fall into sometimes sharp competition over prestige just as we do over power this is well attested in academics, for instance, the world of publisher parish. A sudden elevation in status triggers elation and also, interestingly, a degree of charitableness, while a sudden drop triggers immediate anxiety, rage, envy, and depression. Testosterone levels likewise track changes in status, alongside social status. Everyone is concerned with self-image and the way they present themselves. What is also curious is that everything I've been talking about today is in direct contradiction to the common wisdom of the West, which insists that the purest aspirations of humanity are found in the individual. The seat of ethics, creativity, aesthetic sensibilities, and spirituality that is easily corrupted and oppressed by the society. We seem to have had it backwards all these centuries. It's rather the individual and the absurd attitude of individualism that corrupts society. Unfortunately, over all these centuries, our backwardness has guided the development of modern nation-states capitalism and colonialization and now modern neoliberal economics and cultural standards built on a foundation of hyper-individualism. Moral communities can provide centers of productive cooperation where selflessness finds a welcome home and in which other positive human qualities can most effectively develop, though they can also be problematic. A good example is the historical Jewish diaspora in Europe, which was generally ethnically and linguistically set apart from dominant cultures, but tended to attain success in a number of metrics not generally reached by surrounding communities, for instance, lower criminality and alcoholism, better education, and so on. Early Christian communities also formed around strong moral principles, for instance, refusing to participate in war. They also had a strong ethics around treating rather than fearing victims of the various plagues that visited Europe over the centuries. And this cooperative caring for one another tended to produce a longer life expectancy overall than enjoyed in the surrounding communities as a result. It has been pointed out that a key difference between cooperation in moral communities and coercive hierarchies elsewhere is that moral communities generally don't need police because there is little coercion, only common identity held together by common values as well as by common ritual practices. There is a kind of spirit that motivates a moral community in which we identify with and cooperate in achieving something larger than ourselves. We've all belonged to one community like this or another, if not a religious community, then a band of cheerleaders or participants in summer camp. Moral communities are recognized by an overwhelming sense of belonging, participation, commitment, and solidarity. Academic disciplines in the fine arts develop through a shared sense of commitment rather than greed for a paycheck, contrary to modern wisdom. However, the morals that unite participants need not be worthy motives or may be based on shared delusion. Combat units in war become extremely tight moral communities, in which buddies are willing to give their lives to one another when someone shoots back. The World Economic Forum seems to be a kind of moral community for billionaires. A gaggle of Nazis can form a moral community. Within Buddhism, there are many moral communities at many different levels, from weekly meditation groups to large charitable organizations. However, the central importance of the monastic Sangha in Buddhism is evident in the significance the Buddha attached to it. He devoted a lot of energy to creating it, then tweaking it and retweaking it, producing a detailed moral code called in Pali the Vinaya, which means literally leading away, which captures the idea of non participation in those aspects of mundane life that undermine spiritual progress. The Buddha consistently referred to the entirety of his teachings as the Dhamma Vinaya, pairing its social teachings with the Dharma itself. The community, rooted in the moral code of the Vinaya, provides a context in which non-selves can thrive. Buddhist communities at large have faithfully and willingly upheld the Sangha through history in virtually every Buddhist land. The Monastic Code gives us insight into the Buddha's social thinking, in particular into what kinds of social structures and activities a non-self can safely participate in, and what kind of involvements a non-self can must be led away from participating in. Monastics are allowed, according to the Winnia, to do almost nothing for themselves. They are permitted no livelihood, no trade, and are isolated from the conventional exchange economy. Their material needs are offered to them entirely by the laity. Monastics are proscribed, except in exceptional circumstances, from asking for anything. That is, they do not beg, but only offer the opportunity to give, generally by walking past houses in the local village with their alms bowls. And even in this, they're not allowed to prefer one house, the wealthy one or the home of the French chef, over another. They're not even allowed to endear themselves through charm and wit to families with the intent of garnering better, or greater offerings, nor are they allowed to show off any special psychic powers, nor talk about attainments to gain prestige. They can build themselves a dwelling or sew robes for themselves, but if they do so, these must be limited in size and quality. They also curtail frivolous speech, entertainments, and self-beautification, and they observe limits on what they can own or store, and they do not eat after noon. Of course, curtailing sexual activity is foundational to monasticism, not participating in the most reliable and well-worn route to self-entanglement in problematic mundane affairs. On the other hand, there are almost no restrictions on what a monastic can do for others. On teaching, pastoral care, good works, advice, even physical labor, as long as it is not compensated, there is no tit-for-tat, only generosity in the monastic life, both as giver and receiver. Interestingly, the few restrictions on the monastic's ability to aid others, apply for the most part to traditional priestly functions, such as predicting the future, healing, or appealing to the mercy of deities. The Buddha explicitly did not want a Sangha of Brahmin priests. While the material support of the laity is critical to providing the context in which a non-self can live and thrive, for those most intent on spiritual progress, by living in accord with the Dhamma Vinaya, the greatest benefit the Sangha provides for those members of the larger community who do not choose to join its ranks is its influence as a counterculture embedded within a larger culture. The Sangha lives in close proximity to working families in Every village throughout much of Asia, where it teaches the Dharma directly. But more importantly, it provides a living example of what it is to live a Buddhist life and what the fruits of such a life are. It provides a reality check for the mainstream culture to the notion that material excess leads to happiness. With each monk or nun, serving as a very visible, walking science experiment, a test tube in which the ingredients of the highest standards of the Buddhist life have been poured and then stirred, with the results open to all for inspection. Next week, I'll point out some specific ways this counterculture encounters the ape in us. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.